encourage you to open up to 1 Corinthians 15 in your pew Bibles or if you have them or on your phones. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, we'll be uh, reviewing a little bit of what Pastor Jeremy covered last week and then uh, carry on from there. 1 Corinthians 15. Well, uh, professional, uh, prof- uh, professional golf um, PGA champion, Paul Azinger, back in 1993 after winning the PGA, uh, developed cancer. And uh, he had won 10 tournaments up to that time, and in his book called Zinger, after Paul A. Zinger, he wrote about his battle when he said, a genuine feeling of fear came over me. I could die from cancer. Then another reality hit me harder. I'm going to die eventually anyway, whether from cancer or something else. It's just a matter of when. All I wanted to do was live. Perhaps the greatest fear in life is the fear of death. It's God's greatest enemy. There's a tombstone along an old graveyard right along the pathway that reads, Reader, stop and think. I'm in eternity and you're on the brink. Some believers in Corinth were beginning to believe uh, or fear death because they, they were being taught by false teachers that there was no resurrection of the body. And so they lacked assurance and in, in, in strength and boldness in the face of death. Even though they were believers and believed the gospel that Jesus died and rose again, they were being taught and they're believing that there was no resurrection of the body. In 1 Corinthians 15, 12, Paul sums it up this way. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, that's the gospel, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? Now, they could have been being taught that the resurrection is language only for this lifetime on earth. You live the resurrected life. Christians are more joy-filled, but it's not for eternity. Or they might have been taught that the soul will go into some spirit world, but the body itself will not. The body is simply a tomb for the soul. Or today, many believe about the resurrection, that there is the resurrection of the body to eternal life, but many lack full assurance that they will be included among the resurrected. The Apostle Paul argued that if there's no resurrection, and then in verse 13 of chapter 15, he said, if there's no resurrection, then Christ himself was not raised. And if Christ was not raised, then our preaching is useless. It's empty. It's a sham. In other words, in verse 15, these apostles preaching the gospel are liars. Verse 15 and 17, and your faith, therefore, is meaningless. Verse 18, and death is the finality. Uh, final experience. Those who die are eternally lost. And then in verse 19, Christians are to be pitied more than anyone else because they have chosen to believe a fallacy. When we come face to face with our mortality, will we be like Paul Azinger, who was filled with fear and hopelessness? Or perhaps, like many today, they're filled with uh, regret. As they face death, Rick Warren writes, I've been at the bedside of many people in their final moments. 
when they stand on the edge of eternity and I've never heard anyone say, "Uh, can you bring me my diplomas? I want to look at them one more time. Show me my awards and my medals and can you get that gold watch that I was given? I too have stood at the bedside of those who are dying, especially when I worked as a chaplain in Chicago. And uh, none of them voiced requests like this. But many were filled with regret as I talked about their, pa- their lives, their history. Um, many of them regretted how much time they invested in things of this world. You know, they told me about their lawn, their manicured lawn, which, which isn't bad to take care of. It could be a good steward, but they invested so much time in their lawn or their car or their homes or, or accumulation of stuff. None of them said, man, I'm so excited that I accumulated so much. They had regret because they did so. They forfeited living for God and his kingdom. Well, Paul continues to address the irrationality of belief in life where there's no resurrection in verses 29 through 34. He says, if this life is all there is and there's no resurrection, then why would people be so concerned about the dead? They're dead, their loved ones, 29. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And Pastor Jeremy unpacked this last week, if you were here you'd know that the Christians were not believing in being baptized for the dead, their departed loved ones, but it was amidst the culture, the pagan belief that you could, one could be baptized for the dead and somehow uh, direct them into different places or whatnot. He said, but if the pagan culture believes this and yet is taught that there's no resurrection from the dead, what purpose is there in baptizing the dead? Why do we do this why do we not just forget about our loved ones because after all you know they're gone for good i mean we can think about them but secondly if there's no resurrection why would anyone risk the spiritual persecution for confessing that jesus is the way to eternal life in verse 30 he says as for us why do we endanger ourselves every hour I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained if the dead are not raised? And thirdly, why strive to live morally? Why strive to not sin, resist sin? Why strive to, for a more self-disciplined life if there's no resurrection for the dead? Why not, just in verse 32, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Live, go for the gusto on this earth. And Paul wasn't just referring to those who were partying so much so that there were drunkards out there and I live the party life. I think he's speaking to an attitude that we very much encompass here in America live for as much as you can get out of this life as possible plan your vacations well Um, live for entertainment and recreation live for the accumulation of more and more stuff Uh, live for self-improvement because after all if this is all there is this life then go for it but we do so at the exclusion of living for things that are eternal 
for Christ and his kingdom. Well, Paul anticipated how they might object in verse 35, he said, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? In other words, if as you say, Paul, that there is indeed a resurrection of the dead, then how will our bodies be restored after they've disintegrated, after they've decomposed in the ground? Roger Williams died many, many years ago, and an apple tree grew over his grave, and the roots pushed through his wooden casket. And over time, it disintegrated underground. And one could have this mindset that the Corinthians had. Well, when the apples grew above his grave, does that mean that Roger Williams became a part of the apples that people consumed? Is that all? And I don't, that's what they were literally believing. That, that's all there is. Today, others may wonder, how is it possible for God to reconstruct our bodies if we choose to be cremated? That's kind of the attitude. Once we're gone and back into dust, then how in the world is God going to reconstruct a body? And Paul responds to these thoughts, and they might be foolish to us. He responds in the same way, verse 36. How foolish he says our resurrection bodies will not experience reconstruction from our temporary bodies that we live in earth but we will experience a continuity of who we are well what's the difference between a reconstruction and continuity well Paul illustrates by giving three examples revealed in nature comparing our earthly bodies to our resurrected bodies that we will one day experience. He begins by uh, differentiating the difference between seeds and plants. Verse 36. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When uh, When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. A professor of biology would every year take before his class class, uh, rooms a seed, and then he would bow in honor before the seed between his thumb and forefinger. This professor had spent his lifetime uh, studying the beginnings of life, yet he acknowledged the mystery of life even contained in the seed. He said, I know exactly what this seed consists of, in its exact proportions of water, carbon, and other elements, I can mix these individual elements together and make a seed that will look just like this one. But if I plant the seed that I've compounded, then it will not grow. The various elements I put together will be absorbed into the ground. However, if I plant this seed, the seed that God created, it will spring up into a plant because it contains the mysterious element we call life. The physical resurrection of the body is just as much a mystery. Our bodies contain the stuff of eternity. Paul says. So during the Second World War, a church in uh, London was preparing for a harvest Thanksgiving meal, and the night before they prepared it all, and they put the serving table in the middle with, with a, one sheaf of corn as a decoration. The dinner never was held that night because the night before, an air raid flew over London, bombed the church, and leveled the church. 
Months passed and spring came and someone noticed on the bomb site where the church had stood little shoots of green. Summer passed and fall came and there flourishing was a patch of corn, ears of corn growing everywhere amidst the rubble. Not even the bombs of destruction could the life be um, destroyed in the corn. And this is what Apostle Paul was referring to by contrasting our temporal bodies with our eternal resurrected bodies. He said in verse 42, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Like seeds, our bodies will one day be buried, but then they will be resurrected and they'll be transformed from perishable to imperishable, from dishonor to glory, from weakness to power, from natural to spiritual. And who will we become but the fulfillment of all that God had desired for us to be the moment he created us? There's a continuity of who we are. We go from life to to life and like this tulip bulb which is not pretty to look at in fact it's rather ugly these tulip bulbs once they're buried they transform into one of the most beautiful creations in this earth tulips difference between plants and seeds and then Paul goes on to say there's a difference between animals and people in verse 39 not all flesh is the same People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. In other words, if God is able to be so creative on this earth, creating all different types of bodies for all living things, then how much more will he be able to recreate us in our new, perfect resurrection bodies? And then the third highlight from nature the difference between planets and the stars in verse 40, 40. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. You know, our planets are just spectacular. They are amazing creations. The earth and even the moon for the, that is our earth's moon, it is robed in splendor and glory. But these two things, they simply reflect the light. When you see the moon lit up at night, it is a rock that simply reflects the light of the sun. The sun and all of the stars produce their own light and their own unique colors, which is a greater splendor than the planets and the moon, if you will. For example, in the December sky, you'll look up and see stars. You'll see Aldebaran as pale rose. You'll see Rigel as bluish white, and you'll see Betelgeuse as orange topaz, each with their own unique beauty emanating their own light as stars. And like the planets and stars, our earthly bodies have their own kind of splendor, originally created in God's image after his likeness, 
but they've been compromised at the fall because of sin in the Garden of Eden. And so we don't fully demonstrate the glory of God yet, but one day our resurrected bodies, they will. They will reveal a much greater splendor when they're transformed into their eternal, glorious bodies, immortal. Verse 51, listen, Paul says, I I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. Children love Marvel superheroes in some ways because they want to pretend that they're immortal and powerful. And my nephew's three-year-old son, who I met this past a week and a half ago for the first time in Ohio, his name is Teddy, and he came up to me after wrestling around with him, and he said, who's your favorite superhero? And so I went old school on him. I went Superman, Batman, and Spider-Man. But I went one step further. I got my cell phone out, and I opened the 1960s versions of all three of them, you know, the intros, and I showed it to him. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, he can do whatever spiders can, you know, whatever. And then I showed him Batman, and he memorized that song because it only has one word. Batman, and he loved the pow, boof, bash. And then I showed him the Superman. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's Superman. And he was mesmerized, and he wanted to watch them all over again. I'm telling you, there's no better superhero than the superheroes of the 60s. And we all dream about superhero status, more so immortality, because, as Ecclesiastes puts it, God has placed eternity in the human heart. In other words, God created us with this desire to live forever because we were originally supposed to live forever. And because of Christ's death and resurrection, we can live forever. I visited my mother also a week and a half ago, and I went to see her uh, stuck in her nursing home, and we put chairs outside the window as we do, got on the cell phone, And my mother, who now has Alzheimer's, um, who didn't really recognize me and two of my siblings who were with me, although we told her our names, John's here and Jim's here and Cindy's here, and twice she she said, John. And I said, see, I told you all this, the favorite child. (laughs) But she really didn't recognize us much at all, and it became very apparent, and it was sad. Um, and now she's on hospice officially. And she, but even before, when she had her memory about a year ago, more so, she really wanted to go home to be with Jesus and be with my dad, her husband, and be with her parents, loved ones in Christ before her. She is longing to be in her new body, in her new home. And Paul Azinger came to this understanding. He is cancer-free today, still alive. He's a, he's a commentator for golf. 
He came to the realization back in 1993 when facing his own mortality. He said, I've made a lot of money since I've been on the tour and I've won a lot of tournaments, but happiness is always temporary, I've discovered. Everything I had accomplished in golf became meaningless to me. The only way you'll ever have true contentment is in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that nothing ever bothers me and I don't have problems, but I feel like I found the answer to the six-foot hole. Um, when my dad was asked when he was alive, how you doing? He said, well, I haven't heard the lawnmower, lawnmower overhead yet, so pretty good. <laughs> that was his answer to the six-foot hole there. Well, here's a wonderful truth. If you know Jesus Christ as Paul Azinger does today, then you are immortal. You are eternally alive. Jesus said it this way in John 11. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing me will never die which is pretty mind-blowing. If you think about it, you are sitting here as eternally alive beings, immortal. Think about forever and what that means. It's hard for us to imagine what that means because we plan so much of our life trying to get in the best shape as possible to maintain our bodies. We take vitamins, we eat right in order to prolong our lives because we want to live longer, only to eventually come to face our inevitability. Paul concludes by offering, though, this great assurance in verse 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? In other words, why fear? Why have hopelessness in the face of death? So unlike Paul Azinger in his early years, we need not fear death. The other Paul, Paul the Apostle, wrote, for me to live is Christ, to die is actually better. It's gain for me. A young child was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and his parents knew that he would die soon. And the child knew it as well. And so one night as this child was sitting on the lap of his mom watching TV, he looked up at mom and said, Mommy, does it hurt to die? And, and the mom got so overwhelmed with her emotions that she had to excuse herself and, and go gather back her wits. And she went into the bathroom and she prayed, God, what can I tell my son? None, then God gave her a word. She came back and explained to her son, Honey, do you remember how many times you've fallen asleep in front of the TV? He said, Yeah. And then the next morning, you'd wake up and you'd be in your bedroom. Well, I want to tell you what happens when you die. Or, I'm sorry, I want to tell you what happens when you fall asleep, actually, in front of the TV. Well, either I or your dad will gather you up into our loving arms and that will carry you right over that over there to your bedroom and then we put you in bed and then when you wake up you're in another room he said that's exactly what happens when you die you fall asleep 
And then Jesus comes and he gathers you up into his loving arms and he just takes you out, just little doorway, and then right when you wake up, you're in his presence, you're in heaven. And we'll join you there too forever and ever. And so that was comforting to the child. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? For me to live is Christ and to die is even gain. Our physical death is merely a doorway into inheriting our permanent, perfected, and resurrected bodies in which we will glorify our Lord and Savior forevermore. That will be our purpose for all eternity. I got thinking about eternity, and I thought, what would, how could we compare eternity to any thoughts that we have? And I thought, if we started in the Atlantic Ocean, and then we took one step per year, every year, how long would it take for you to step into the Pacific Ocean? It would take far less than the eternity that will be afforded when we're in Christ, with Christ. We can't even begin to comprehend eternity. Winston Churchill arranged for his funeral. He wanted emphasized his belief in Christ. So after the benediction of his funeral, the, the bugler was to play taps, indicating which is a universal signal that the day is over. But he immediately following taps, another bugler would play reveille, which is the universal signal that a new day has begun. And that day's coming for each one of us in Christ. And we'll experience the immortality of our souls and our bodies. Amen. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this hope, the hope that you've given to us because you died and you rose again. You are the first fruits of resurrection and you've paved the way then for all who believe in you to be resurrected to new life and a new body which you prepared for us. We thank you, Lord, that uh, we will be recognized and recognize our loved ones in these perfected bodies, even in the same way that Peter, James, and John recognized Moses and Elijah when they were with you in their glorified form in the Mount of Transfiguration. We thank you, Lord, that we will have this grand reunion in your kingdom one day where we'll be able to be with our loved ones forever and ever serving you in strength. Lord, fill us with this hope that we so desperately need in this broken and hurting world, I pray. Amen.